Revelations chapter 5. Revelations chapter 5 is where we'll be at today. Working through our study of the of our Advent series. Many of you know that I uh, work out of town during the week, uh, some weeks, uh, for a couple of nights normally, just kind of depends. And uh, when I get back into town, if we are going to eat out, there's normally uh, one particular restaurant that I pick, and that's Pizza King. Can't believe there's not any amen. We have one hand lifter, though. Amen, brother. And I am of the opinion, personally, that uh, Pizza King is the um, greatest pizza ever made on the face of the planet. Um, and yet, um, from time to time in my lifetime, my wife and I have spoken to friends who live outside of Longview who might be coming in town, and they get here, and they're like, we want to try this Pizza King place. And I'm like, well, yes, you do. <laughs> and we take them, and uh, just like almost Christmas morning, waiting for people to unwrap gifts, we watch them take their first bite, and there have been a handful of occasions where our friends have said, eh, it's okay. And let me just tell you, if you ever have a chance to do that, and that's for your friend's response, that is a great moment to uh, end your friendship. Uh, <laughs> I think you have a very biblical and factual reason for doing so, and I think Jesus would understand that uh, personally. But um, nevertheless, uh, I just personally believe if you don't like Pizza King, you're probably a communist, um, and you don't know Jesus. But that's just my opinion. The book of Revelation is about like opinions on pizza. Um, there are few books in the Bible, in fact, I would argue there are not any other books in the Bible uh, that can create a greater uh, disagreement and passions than maybe the book of Revelation. Uh, in fact, I was telling uh, Chad Malden, our uh, resident theologian, I would say, for lack of a better word, that I discovered during my study of this that Martin Luther uh, and Calvin didn't even like the book of Revelation. They just argued about it, and, and uh, there have been some debates about this book for quite some time. Yet, uh, we believe it is in the canon. We believe it is inspired. And most um, historical fathers in the church would agree, and yet there have been massive disagreements over whether or not it is literal, whether or not it is symbolic. If you grew up in East Texas, how many of y'all grew up in East Texas or Texas? You're probably dispensational and you don't even know it. That's um, <laughs> the reality of it. Uh, and some in here may be pre-millennial or post-millennial or all-millennial or you may pre-rap, post-rap. I mean, there's all kinds of debates over the book of Revelation. Um, and if you uh, are like me in some ways, you just want to say things like, look, I know he's coming back, and I know I'm going, and all the other details are, are up to that. Now, that is um, one that is somewhat of a cop-out for us having to study the book of Revelation, which I think we should study the book of Revelation, uh, but at the same token, I think it is impossible, in my opinion, um, for us, based on uh, the different disagreements about this to say, I am 
100% absolutely positive that my view is the only right view and everybody else is completely and utterly wrong. I think that's difficult with such a book like this. Uh, and I would also say that uh, I believe um, that your opinions about Revelation, um, for the most part, uh, are secondary and tertiary uh, issues. Now, you're saying, well, you're doing a lot of work this morning about a book. Um, that's because my intent this morning uh, is not to explain the book of Revelation to you, uh, nor is it uh, my desire to try to lean you toward one particular point or not. Instead, my point is to answer the question that we have had in Advent, and that is Jesus worthy? And now, I think you'll hear when I teach this, you may hear some doctrinal positions. And if you disagree with those doctrinal positions, I would like for you to take a deep breath and relax like you just say to yourself, I don't like Pizza King either. And just, <laughs> I would tell you that you're probably wrong. But anyway, uh, nevertheless, I want to go through this. And I want you, uh, if you are passionate about your position, I want you just to lay that down for a little bit. Let's look at this very central question. Is, is he worthy? And then I think we'll find uh, some answers to that. Now in Revelation chapter 4, John, the Apostle John, uh, who is exiled uh, at this time, um, on an island, Patmos, and uh, some believe maybe he was in a prison there. There are other debates that maybe he had just been banished there to uh, live alone, uh, regardless of where you stand on that. Uh, he is inspired and given a revelation, uh, a vision, caught up in the Spirit, and Jesus tells him, write down what you see. And so let's just look at Revelations chapter 1. Hold your spot there briefly. Revelations chapter 1. I'm going to read 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 1, 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. If you've ever wondered whether or not Keith and I discuss the sermons regarding the songs, case rested. <laughs> we sang much of those words in two songs that we sang this morning. 
So the purpose, I would tell you, of Revelation, uh, this is one commentator, the purpose of Revelation is to show God's sovereignty in history and the promise of the culmination of all things in him. It is a call for those of us in Christ to remain faithful and hopeful in the midst of persecution and I would say the aggression of this fallen and evil anti-Christian world. John is in called up into the spirit. He records what he sees. And in chapter 4, he has a view of the throne room in heaven. And he sees God seated on the throne. And the description of that follows in chapter 4. And it is spectacular what he sees. And then he moves into chapter 5. And in chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to read the entire chapter. The inspired word of God through the Apostle John says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it has been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures of the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Preachers get to be out of jobs in heaven. <laughs> Woo! Worship leaders, no. <laughs> and they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a soft, quiet, <coughs> saying... <coughs> Can you imagine, I have been in an arena where 6,000 pastors sang songs. <clears throat> Let me tell you, if Jesus would have said, I'm going to come right now, we would all went, okay, <laughs> we would have been ready. Can you picture this scene with a loud voice saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might and ever, forever and ever. And the living creatures, four living creatures said, amen, 
and the elders fell down and worshiped. Mm. Let me pray for us. God, I pray you would send your Holy Spirit to not pass us by, but to stir our hearts into worship of you and your Son, Christ, the Lamb who has ransomed us from our sin. And may we see that so clearly this morning in your word. And may you be honored by what you hear us say today. May your word be clearly explained. And may your Holy Spirit convict hearts, I pray. We need your help this morning, Lord. Don't pass us by. Come and move. Bring yourself glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's break this passage down bit by bit. Verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Well, we know, if you remember some of your history, you've watched the movies. In ancient times, they didn't have books. Um, not like we have books. Um, most historians agree they didn't really appear until the second century. Instead, they had these scrolls, and you've seen them. They would roll up from both ends and, and meet in the middle. And this particular scroll we have here has writing on the inside of the scroll and uh, what is somewhat unusual, writing on the outside of the scroll. Now, what they would say when you study this is papyrus paper. Uh, papyrus is what they wrote on. It would have been very difficult to write on uh, on the back side of it as opposed to the front side. So this is it's unusual. Um, but nevertheless, um, this particular scroll has writing on the inside and outside. And there are seven seals which must be broken before you can unroll it to read the contents. Now, most of us have seen this in movies too. These seals were small blobs of wax that someone would put their impression in, the king's impression or whatever, uh, that would signify the owner. Uh, and these would prevent people from reading it um, without being authorized to read it. Or if you did read it and then tried to hand it off, people would know that you had read it. It's hard to put that back together the right way. So, now, regarding this, <laughs> there is some healthy debate within the church about what this scroll represents. But many would argue, in fact, there's a pretty good um, group who would argue uh, historically uh, and theologically uh, that these are, this picture of the scroll is strikingly similar to how contracts in ancient Middle East were put together. Contracts or deeds, uh, generally to property, were written like this, and sometimes they were written on the back, and on the back of the scroll would have the subject of what that scroll was, and then when you opened it up, the inside would give the details regarding that title, or that land deed, or that legal contract. And they generally were sealed with seven seals to show its significance. Therefore, uh, I think... Um, in my own study and just reading all the different accounts and thoughts of the history and looking at ancient Middle East, uh, this is representative of some kind of a contract. Uh, and I believe, as we'll see in a minute, uh, that it is a contract representing the consummation of all things, simply um, how things are going to finally be wrapped up and in. Now, why do I think that and why do others think that? Well, 
Revelation chapter 6 gives us some idea of that. Uh, in Revelation chapter 6, uh, each scroll that is open starts something occurring um, on the earth, and none of them are very good uh, for those uh, who are not followers of Christ. Revelation chapter 6, 15 through 17 says this, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So I think when you look at this picture of the scroll, um, which I said it's not going to be the most important thing to look at this morning uh, for, the, uh, for this sermon, uh, but I believe it is representing the end of all things, the consummation of all things, and this is what that scroll represents. And I think chapter 6 uh, makes that, uh, for me, fairly clear. And then verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, you can almost see God the Father, the scroll is in his hand. This mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In other words, Jason, some of y'all are not going to like this so much, but how do we get this thing started? How do we get this thing off? We, we got to have this thing opened, this thing ready to go. Who is worthy to get this thing started. And John records, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Those of you who grew up liking knights, Excalibur always comes to mind here. Maybe not the best illustration, but the sword and the stone, whoever can pull the stone, the sword out becomes king. And you know, if you've seen, there are all kinds of variations of that, but there's always somebody who is eventually worthy enough to pull that out. Well, in this scene, no one even remotely comes forward. The call goes out, nobody arrives. And John says, and I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, there's debate about why is he crying? Why would he, be, why would he be weeping when he must know about Jesus? Clearly, he knows about Jesus. Clearly, he knows about the Lamb and who Christ is and that he is the Messiah and he is the one who rescues. But nonetheless, in this scene, he weeps. And for today's sermon, the main focus is not what's in this scroll, although I believe it is important. But rather, the important part is who is worthy enough to open it? And no one is found. This leads John to weep. Why would he weep? Um, if you haven't caught the song by Andrew Peterson, Is He Worthy? We sang it this morning. Um, and it is um, his song that we based our Advent on. We got the title for Advent. We didn't base it on his song. We based it on Scripture. He based the song on Scripture, but we took that title and used it for our Advent series. If you don't like that 
Uh, blame that on Chad Malden. He introduced me to Andrew Peterson, so it's all his fault. Um, if you have not been around Andrew Peterson, he is by far my favorite musician now um, since Rich Mullins has gone home to be with the Lord, and Andrew is the closest thing we got to him. So, um, But in his, uh, what I believe, just an outstanding song, Is He Worthy, he opens up with this line. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel that? Do we feel that on a daily basis? Do, do we not, as believers, do we not have this, this angst within us for things to be made right? Have you ever been wounded by somebody wrongly, where you, you didn't do anything wrong as, as best as you can perceive? You tried to obey Christ, and in your obedience, you were wronged and harmed and, and do you not, in, in your own, even though you know who Jesus is, even though you know he's God, do you not, maybe in your bed or, or driving down the road, do you, do you not get angry and frustrated and say, why is it like this? This is wrong. This should not be happening. Have you ever heard a heinous crime come across the news wire? Maybe it's involving a child who's just brutally assaulted and murdered. And is there not something in you that says, 50 years in prison is enough. The death chamber is not enough. A lethal injection is not enough. But why does this stuff happen? Do you not feel that? Do you not feel that at Christmas time, all of the pain and the suffering? We are spurred at this moment in Christmas to suddenly, for the first time, for many of us, it's just, I'm calling out myself here, so if you get in the middle of it, it's not my fault, okay? But isn't this the time that we suddenly notice the homeless and the poor? They were there the other 11 months. But, but we have this sensation in our mind to go, man, that's not good. They don't have Christmas. They don't have any toys. We, we need to help them. They, they didn't have anything of the other 11 months either. But, but in this moment, we, we suddenly feel this angst within us to go do something to make things right. And we feel it deep down inside of us that everything is off. We need a course correction. And we know it. We know we, we ourselves. We know our own sin. I have said it before and I'll say it again. The greatest thing about heaven is, yes, Jesus will be there. Let me tell you another great thing about heaven. I won't sin anymore. I won't have to worry about my choices anymore. I'm going to make holy decisions. Do you not have those moments in your life where you fail in sin and you go, why can't I get this right? Anybody there with me at all? Is it just me? We're afraid to be charismatic by lifting our hands. We feel this in us. We find ourselves screaming for justice, for things to be made right. I remember reading the account of an unbeliever who won the Super Bowl, who eventually became, I think he became a believer later on or sometime afterwards, but he won the Super Bowl and he made the comment that while he was walking to his car long after all the festive Festivus had ended. He said, I walked to the car and I had this incredible sense of being completely empty. I had attained everything I had wanted. 
and I was empty. And for believers, have you not checked off so many boxes and yet you, after checking off all those boxes, you still feel like there's something not right, that you want something else? And how many times do we buy stuff and experience things and yet, for whatever reason, it just hasn't quite satisfied us? We long for something different. We long for a course correction. We long for things to be made right. I don't think there's any better person, in in my personal opinion, who has explained more of these feelings than C.S. Lewis. In C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, he wrote this. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. When the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world to offer to give it to you, but they never quite live up to their promise. And then, if you've kept up much with C.S. Lewis, a famous line, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. I have talked to, in my career field, mainly senior adults. And many of these senior adults know Christ, and they have told me when they find out I'm a preacher or whatever, they tend to share things, and many of them in their 80s and 90s uh, will say things like, let me tell you something. If you live long enough, the only thing you long for is heaven because all your family's gone. All your friends are gone, and there's nothing here that means that much anymore. I just want to go home. You not feel that in us? We want things to be made right. We long for something else. And I personally, and I think you would join me here, we long for this battle to be over. We long for complete and total victory over sin. Isaac Watts in his song, Joy to the World, in an often unsung verse, um, the reason I think it's not sung much is because I don't think I've heard it that often. (laughs) So, brother, forgive me if we sang it when we sang it last time. But I love this line. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. There's a desire for this to end. And no doubt, when John writes this, he is fully aware of the persecuted church, the persecuted Christians around him. He is well aware of the battle against the church. It is because of that battle he is where he is, and he also, I have no doubt, wants this to end. Can you imagine having a vision of heaven and seeing the throne room and the angels and hearing the songs and hearing all that is there and yet being sent back to earth? What a disappointment. He wants final justice to be enacted. And we long for that. We long for it, for evil to be punished. We feel the burning wrath in our own bones for all the things that are done that are so evil. And so just as we 
release our emotions when we hear about a heinous crime that's gone wrong or gone terrible or when we hear about a criminal who wasn't punished or when we are ourselves harmed or brutalized by people and we we have emotions about it and even when we brutalize other people and there's emotion and we have to confess we we have all this we feel it we want it all to end as one commentator said renewal is one of the many re words in the bible Redemption, regeneration, restoration, reconciliation, resurrection. The Bible is constantly speaking that Jesus is here to grasp and to get and to reclaim all that was lost because of sin. And we long for that. And so John, knowing and sensing that he's seen what could be the beginning of the end and justice and restoration, and then there's a silence in heaven as no one comes forward to take the scroll out of the Father's hands. And yet while he's weeping, verse 5, one of these elders says to me, weep no more. Oh, that's good in the Bible right there. Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In verse 6, in between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, this is John, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, watch what happens when Jesus takes the scroll. When he takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding the harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they immediately began to sing a new song. And here's the song. We've asked the question all week, is he worthy? Well, let me tell you what heaven says. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. He came in the flesh. He was obedient to death. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Oh, that should stir our hearts to remember Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Is he worthy? Yes, he is worthy. It should make us think of 1 Peter chapter 1, that we are ransomed from our feudal ways, inherited from our forefathers because of original sin. You were born into sin, and we are not ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold. No, no, this is how God ransomed you. Are you ready? With the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. And so when the 24 elders sing a new song proclaiming Christ is worthy, they are right, he is worthy. But it doesn't end there. Because verse 11 says, 
Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voices, many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they too began to sing with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let me tell you, is he worthy? Yes, he is. He's worthy. He became flesh. He understands what you are going through because he has been there and yet without sin. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross because he took your curse because cursed is any man hung on a tree and his name is exalted above all names. So he is worthy. And judgment is coming. This lamb who was slain, who has been rejected, will come and take his vengeance on those who have rejected him. I don't care if you're post pre all millennial, post-millennial, whatever you want to get into. Let me tell you something. Jesus is going to take his vengeance on those who have rejected him. And there is a way for you to escape that wrath. And that is through the blood of Christ. And that is the good news of the gospel. That you can't do it. You can't be holy enough to get back to this God, the Father. But... But Christ can, and he has, and he is worthy. And that's why the gospel is good news. So what is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. You were born into sin. No one had to teach you how to sin. You do it naturally. And that sin separated you from the, from the God who sits on this throne in Revelation chapter 4, who can have nothing to do with sin. And yet, that God, even in your sin, even while you're sinning against him, loved you. How much did he love you? So much that he sent his own son. God took on flesh and came here. He was obedient to death, death on a cross to take your curse, your punishment for you. For those who believe and repent and walk with him are forever changed and made holy and brought back into the right relationship with God. Christ takes your sin onto the cross and it is nailed there. And he gives you his righteousness. So that when you walk into the throne room, you're walking into the throne room with robes of righteousness on you. Repent and believe. That's how you come to know Christ. Repent means to understand that what you are doing and the way you live your life is against God. It's sinful. 
Repent means to say, I'm not going that way anymore. I'm going to go the opposite way toward Christ. Believe means that only Jesus can make this happen. So I repent of how I have been living. I go to Christ. I believe in his sacrifice. And that is how you come to know Christ. And people say, well, how do I know that I have really done that? How do I know that Christ has reclaimed me? How do I know that he's come and regenerated my heart? Because you will never be the same Will you fail? Yes. Will you sin? Yes. Will you do things that bring God shame? Will you do things that make you shameful? Absolutely, you will, which is why heaven is going to be so good, because we won't do that anymore. But when you do those things, something will be different. You'll, You'll be convicted, and you'll hear a voice that says, this is not for you. I am better. And the Holy Spirit will move you toward holiness. And so when you look at the manger scene this Christmas, I hope you recognize who the child is. That he is the lamb, God with flesh on, who was slain, who is worthy to open the scroll, who is returning again as king of kings and lord of lords. And I pray Come quickly, Lord. Did you know I have a great Christmas this year? Let Jesus come back. <laughs> That's a great Christmas there. And you don't have to pay any of those credit card bills. Let me pray for us. Lord God, come before you now, and I just ask that your Holy Spirit would take your word, you would clean up whatever I said that wasn't the best explanation, Lord, but you would pierce hearts with your truth. And if anyone's here today and they don't know you, they would come in repentance and belief and follow you. And God, for those of us who do know you, who have been redeemed, I pray that we would be reminded this is all going to end one day in the second advent. Your return is going to be such a joyful and wonderful moment as we are united with you, our King, our Lord. And I pray that if anybody is struggling this morning, as we all do from time to time, pray, God, you remind them of this promise that you are coming back and that we would take hope in that. We love you, Lord. Stir our hearts to worship this morning because you and you alone are worthy. It's your name we pray.